0: Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture.
1: And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. and I am so excited that today we are joined by Mary Felice, who... I think is the first person I've actually met on LinkedIn and in fairly short order formed a relationship with. <laughs> it can work. You can form friendships online. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just kind of tickled. I've had lots of professional relationships, but I feel like this is the first time where I've met somebody on LinkedIn that became sort of friend professional colleague. And we met when she was in the early stages of building a community of Enneagram practitioners, which... Listeners, you've heard Anne and I talk about the Enneagram on a number of episodes, and I'm sure it will come up again today. A very fun fact that we discovered very early on is that we both started our careers in public accounting at big eight CPA firms. Now there's just four, so that's dating both of us. And we both were there for three to four years, so a very similar early start in our careers. However, today, Mary is pretty far away from the accounting profession. She is a teacher of transformation who helps her clients access deep healing and transformation. She has a PhD in philosophy, very deep knowledge of the Enneagram, and is trained in a powerful process called compassionate inquiry that was developed by this amazing doctor named Gabor Matei. She describes herself as the philosopher who wears Louboutins, and I'm sure we will hear more about this juxtaposition of philosophy and fabulous
0: footwear later in the conversation. (laughs) I mean, I'm a fan of the fabulous footwear for sure.
1: (laughs) So Mary, we are so excited that you are joining us today, and I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us a bit about your journey.
2: Sherry, Anne, thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how excited I am, actually. And yes, Sherry, we have become friends. Haven't we? <laughs> yes. So you know, you asked me to share my story, and and uh, right before we started, I said, "Well, how far back do you want me to go?" Because, and especially in the line of work that we are, we know that our culture and what our parents brought to this life really has affected us and and I can't talk about who I am today without mentioning where my parents came from. So I am going to go back. My parents were immigrants, very poor immigrants that came from Europe. And when they came to Canada, no education at all, no money, it was survival. It was all about survival. And I use you, you talked about me being into the Enneagram. I know now And I understand my parents better. My dad is an Enneagram 9, very passive, with a wing 8. So controlling, but does not like chaos. His goal was to connect with his family, his parents, his brothers and sisters. So his kids were not as important. My mother, again, came very young, Enneagram 7. Her father died when my grandmother was pregnant with her. So her life was about social. How can she get joy out of the world? Her kids were not as important as her social life and her friends. And that just sets the stage of the environment that I grew up in. And and our environment basically is 95% of how our personality develops. So I'm born into this family I became the Cinderella of the family. I'm an Enneagram to the pleaser, got attention from my parents. The only way I knew how, being the helper giver. My brother and sister, not so much. And I got attention by being really good in school. Very, very young, my parents who didn't pay attention to us. And I said I'd promised that I was going to be transparent. And this is my imperfect journey that has brought me to the perfect place. Very, very young at about four years old, there was incest on both sides of the family. Two cousins, opposite sides, neither one of them knew what the other was doing. As a child, I'm growing up, I do not say anything. Just to be really clear, do you mean this was being perpetrated on you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. On me, on me.
0: Okay, I just wanted to clarify. I'm so sorry that happened to you.
2: Thank you. Which has a place in my story that I didn't realize, Mm. but I do now in the looking back with all the work I've done with Gabor, the work I've done with the Enneagram. So this is going on. And from what I've learned now with Gabor, didn't have parents that were safe to go to, I'm hiding this, this secret. I'm the wounded bird. And if you are wounded, from what I've learned from Gabor, the perpetrator, the predator, can always find you out. Now, this was happening to me. I'm four to 12 years old. Then I get to high school, and I'm craving attention, and the predator comes around. I'm 13, he's 18. And he shows attention i end up in a 6 year extremely abusive relationship extremely abusive both verbal and and physical my survival in that time was twofold again i excelled at school and that was my focus that was my addiction that's what pulled me out of this world of chaos and no one would know because i was a very strong outgoing I mean, I was on the student council, I was in plays, meanwhile, I'm crumbling inside. All those things kept me afloat. But there was another thing that in the looking back, I realized my girlfriends, my group of girls, they're the ones that got me through it. They're the ones that showed me the support. Now, they didn't know either, by the way. Okay, they didn't find out till later. But the support, being in this community, the empathy and the love that I got from them was what I didn't get from my parents. At 30, my mother dies. There's another time that I that I really leaned on my girlfriends because my mother died when I'm 30 and I have three kids under the age of four. Again, what helped me through was my friends and my community.
0: You know what's interesting about those two things that you just mentioned is it it strikes me, so please correct me if I'm misinterpreting it, that maybe when you were younger, it wasn't even conscious that you were sort of relying on your friends. And then by by 30, was there more consciousness to that, do you think? Still no. Okay, got it.
2: Okay. No, it didn't happen until I got into my doctorate. Now, I knew there was something special there because... In my 30s, I turned to my girlfriends and I said, what we have is really special. We should start some kind of center because if you bottle this, wow. Right. And they laughed at me and they they call me, you're the one that always asks the questions and wants to go deep. And I'm that one in the group that does, they humored me, but they knew it was important. But I knew early on that something was really special. I didn't realize I survived because of that. So my 30s, I'm still living in Toronto. I realized that it's my girlfriends on the block who have kids and we're all helping each other. We moved to the States and I'm all by myself, no support network. Very quickly, again, it's this bond with the moms and the ladies in the neighborhood. And again, I have my girlfriend. So that was something that really was instilled in me that I knew women played an important role in development with the children, with the individual, and in communities. So that was one of the first things. So if I go back again to high school, we were poor immigrants, uneducated. I had no guidance of what to do after high school and, and, and academics was really important to me. But I had a, a father who was very ambitious and I was given the choice. I could be one of three things because I was only allowed to be a professional. I could be an accountant, a lawyer or a doctor. Well, I was good in math, I was I was good in the business area, and so it was okay, that's where I'm going. So I ended up getting an undergrad in economics and finance, and I go into the accounting room, as Sherry said, and I end up at Ernst & Winnie, again, one of the big eight at the time. Great job. And I hated every minute of it. I'm in this role for three years, and I'm dying inside. I hate my job. I don't want to go to work. Now, again, looking back with all the work I in my method of transformation, a big part of it is learning to read your emotions, emotional agility. I wasn't doing that. So my body broke down. That's the first time my body broke down on me, saying, we can't do this anymore. I ended up in bed. This is 1986. Ended up in bed, and it felt like a boulder was in my belly, pain, couldn't get out of bed. First time. So at this point, do you have your kids yet? No, no. I'm 24. This is pre-marriage. This is still trying to find my way in the world. And I'm still listening to what everyone else is telling me to do. I'm really good at math. I, I gotta be a professional. You're gonna be an accountant. And meanwhile, I'm dying. It took everything to get the nerve and I asked my dad out for a coffee. I didn't wanna do it at home. We sat at a coffee shop and I said, listen, I have to leave. I can't do this. And his reaction was, okay. And I said, I'm going to still use my accounting. I'm going to go into industry and let's see where it goes. So I ended up in the retail world. I got a job as a controller. I ended up becoming the president of the company within three years. And before I did that, the way my mind works is I have to understand all facets of the business. And in doing so, I ended up going from accounting into marketing and buying. And that's, where I realize, oh my gosh, I have a creative side. Of course I have a creative side. That's my outlet.
0: Yeah. So far in your story, we have this horrible incidence of incest that then actually becomes later a relationship. You kind of fall into your career, mostly at the guidance of your father. So- My sense is, sort of to this point, you were in that people-pleasing, attention-seeking sort of thing. There seems to be maybe a little shift that happened in here somewhere that facilitated you, I'll take this job if I get to be part of the development, you move into marketing and, and the other sides of the business. So I'm just curious, did something shift within you? Was there an awakening of some kind that sort of facilitated that move from a little bit more just saying yes to other people, to saying yes to yourself a little bit more? Yeah,
2: I mean, one, it was the physical breakdown. And again, six years into the relationship, it was before I started in the accounting firm. I was still in university. I consciously planned my escape because I knew if I didn't, I had at one time found myself on a cliff. Mm. And that was the choice do i end it or do i really look inwards and say what do i need to do and and then so my prayer up until that and i'm a theologian i believe really strongly in prayer before that point my prayer had been help me help me help me when i realized i was stuck i changed my prayer and i said help me to help him mm. you put me here okay you put me here What is my job here? Because I know I would not be here if you didn't give me the tools. And all of a sudden, everything shifted. And I got this courage and strength of what I needed to do, not only to help him, but for my kind of escape. And it took a year of planning, but I did it. And I got the strength to do it. And, And I broke off. He left.
1: So I want to just jump in for a sec, because you made the comment you're a theologian and you have this prayer, but at this point, you have no formal training as a theologian. No. Right? So there's something inside of you
2: that's instinctive. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I had God by my side. So yes, I felt like he was walking the path with me.
1: And you know what's so interesting is, and I am not a theologian and I am not a religion expert, but I think it's so interesting that I think most of us had our early views, which may have changed later in life, but had our early views shaped by our families, right? Shaped by our families whether you grew up in a church or a synagogue or it was just something that was talked about at home or it wasn't talked about, but you're describing you're in a family that's not religious at all, that doesn't go to church, and yet there was something inside of you that was already developing a relationship with God at this extraordinarily young age, and that's just really interesting.
2: Yeah. I remember as an eight-year-old going to church by myself. I'd get up, I'd walk to church from home by myself. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. I do know now. I believe that that hand is always extended and it's up to us. And for some reason, I had it within me to give my yes very early on. And in the looking back, if I had become a theologian right after high school, it would not have been with the foundations of all my experiences, the business. My business background has played a huge role in what I do today. I coupled that with philosophy and theology. Again, in the looking back, they all really fit together. Yeah. They really do. Yeah.
0: So we left you sort of in your journey when, when you were kind of flat out. And I think it was your first bout of being not well. Yes.
2: That's my first bout. I leave, I go into retail, and I'm there for 10 years. I had so much fun. I loved it. Every minute of it, I loved it. And it really allowed me to utilize my creative side. I've always loved fashion. There's the Louboutin, by the way. (laughs) And it was it was high-end fashion. It was Armani and and Canali and like all these great designers. And I got to go to Italy and New York and Montreal. I mean, it was, it was a beautiful life. The furthest thing from a theologian's life, guys. <laughs> it really was. I had so much fun. But there was still this thing within me. I still had the relationship with God and I had a thousand questions. So my mom passes away. My husband gets transferred to the States. I'm in this great career. And he said, we can have this wonderful life in the States. Should we go? And I discerned and I said, yeah, it's time to go. So I left a beautiful career where I was having so much fun. And we go to the States. Well, little did I know to get a working visa in the States is hard. Yep. And when we moved shortly after 9-11 happens, all those questions I had, All resurfaced. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there incest? Why is there someone bombing us? Why are they fighting over this land all the way over there? Like, what is going on here? And I ended up at a small local university because I went to my church. My priest couldn't help me, he couldn't answer those questions. And he said, But you know what? I'm going to lead you to a theologian in this school go there and talk to them. And I did. And she ends up, the person I sat with, ends up being my mentor, still is to today, Barbara Finan. It's funny, as I say her name, a lump comes through my throat because she has played a huge role in my life. And I sat there asking these questions. She said, you know what? Coincidentally, we are starting a Master's of Theology program in January. Why don't you come in and sit in to the first course? It's an intro to theology and philosophy. I sat there. I've never been so captivated. It wasn't school. It it didn't seem like the business courses. It didn't seem like economics. And it just was natural. It was discussions, deep discussions. It was like sitting around with Socrates. I thought, this isn't school. That led to a master's of theology. And when I graduated, they asked me to teach. As I was starting to teach, I'm like, I have more questions now, probably more than my students do, than when I started three years ago. I saw the connectedness of everything. And I saw how the Holy Spirit connects us. And there was still this, what is the role in women? Because women have a really important role here. And so I said, okay, I've got to go on for a doctorate. And so I seeked out a university. Now, I have three kids, remember, three small kids and no support network. And I'm intending to go away for school. It had to be somewhere that was driving. I ended up with an amazing guy, by the way. Oh, that's good. Fabulous guy. He supported me through this whole thing. And so every week I got in my car and I drove three hours and I stayed overnight. And I squeezed my all my courses into two days. One night. And the reason I went to this school one, it was driving distance, or else I probably would have been to another school, but it was a school where the director of the program was a theologian that had a science background. It's important for me to connect philosophy and theology with science. It has to be proven. And from what I've learned and what what I keep teaching, the science tells us the how. The theology and philosophy tell us the why, and I marry those two together.
0: Can you give me a practical example of that? I want to make sure I'm totally understanding what that
2: means. So the story of creation, the Genesis story, it's a myth. Science will tell us the Big Bang Theory, how it all happened. The Genesis story tells us why it all happened.
0: Ah, beautiful. That's helpful.
2: Okay, and 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 to tell you the truth, the Big Bang theory has come from a Jesuit priest. So Mm. I don't know if most people know that either. I didn't know that. Yeah. So another reason I chose that school is because of a a teacher. His name was Dr. Thompson, and he was a spiritual person who helped me to understand how the spirit. And if I'm going to talk science energy, we're all connected. So if I'm going to talk theologically, we are created in the image and there's the divine seed within all of us. Scientifically, we are all made from that first dust particle and we are all connected through energy. Do you see the two? Yeah. There's a concordance in both. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I'm curious about this Louboutin-wearing, CPA-earning, new mom who ends up in theology school. Did you have a plan when you were thinking about—yeah. So you were kind of following what you found to be interesting. Yeah. Remember, I couldn't work. Right. So you end up with a PhD in
2: theology. And what does that lead you to? So in the connectedness of everything, okay, my focus is, well, how do we become fully human? we're created in the image we are far from that i look at the world as being if i'm talking the genesis story we're still in that sixth day okay there's still chaos there's still there's still suffering there's still pain how if we have been invited into that process of creation and we're still to create what's it mean to be fully human and so my director james bailey fabulous he's a moral theologian directs me to an economic theory. Here's the business that comes back, the business world. It's called the capability approach. The capability approach is the measurement guide the United Nations uses to measure human development nations. It looks at nations, has a grid, and it says if a nation is hu- actually developing or digressing. One of the developers, is developed by Amartya San, who's an economist, and Martha Nussbaum, who's a philosopher. I look at Martha Nussbaum's work. Martha Nussbaum, when she does her work, goes to India and she researches women. She looks at women because women in poor countries in poverty are always the marginalized of the marginalized. That's where I went, wow. There is someone who's speaking about development and looks at the role of women in development and an understanding if women are taken care of everyone's taken care of.
0: Well, it's really an interesting um, sort of pickup, if you will, given the criticality of women in your life and how you had already realized. It's in some ways probably not a surprise that you found this, no. given how important women are in your life. And so what does that meant for you? What have you done with some of this information and knowledge that, that you gained?
2: I end up for eight years going to work with this organization, the capability approach. I end up going... And it's called the Human Development and Capability Approach. I end up heading up what's kind of like a think tank, their their thematic group that examines how culture and religion affect human development. And then I also sit on their ethics in human development for eight years. Also in my dissertation to prove my case, I take a program. It's a respite program that's been working under a community center, and I. Pull that and I use that as my actual proof of how this will work. I instill in this the capability approach program and what I say needs to be added. We developed that into our own nonprofit, which still exists today. 2002, I started with them. It still exists today, and I'm now on the board. It's a respite program that removes low income women from their environment for four days to help them reconnect with their human dignity and who they're called to be. Because in poverty, they're just treading water and you will always put your children ahead of yourself. So my test market with Columbus, 80% of women in poverty are single parent homes, 80%. So they're doing this on their own. We remove them, help them to understand that you need to work on you. You need to be healthy and happy to be a better mom, to be a better daughter, wife, whatever. You need to work on you. Because up until that point, it's not. It's all about their kids. It's all about survival.
1: So I am really fascinated by this. I'm not even sure it's right to say this thread that's running through it. But I'm hearing you say that you're now immersed in this world where women put their kids first and this cycle of poverty is very hard to break. And I'm thinking back to the very beginning of your story where you came out of a family where that was not even remotely true. Your parents did not put their kids first. And I'm not even sure I know what question to ask. It's really interesting that you came out of an environment where the kids it didn't even sound like you guys came second, right? It's kind of like you were just there.
2: We were there. Yeah. Now I'm going to I'm going to give you the answer to that. We had a community. We had grandparents, aunts. My parents thought you're fine. You got a roof over your head. We're we're feeding you. You've got a family that you belong to. Like suck it up. You're on your own. My mom came at 12 on a boat by her you know she came with her mother my dad at 14 all by himself with honestly 25 cents in his pocket so i'm not exaggerating so they looked at us as like suck it up buttercup you've got it easy <laughs> so so at 15 my mom and dad left they went to live in florida my mom tried to go back and then left me with my 13 year old brother to raise but i had a grandmother in town i had an older sister they thought we were fine We did survive. Now, I say that, but my brother and sister, and me too, we all suffered. I would never have gone through what I went through if I had hands-on parents, if I had been seen. My, My sister ends up being an alcoholic. Both my brother and sister were divorced. My brother suffers from depression. We all have our issues because of that parenting. My parents didn't intentionally do this. They are a product of their own. I love my parents and I know they did the best they could. And I got so much from them that have made me who I am in a positive way. These women that we work with, there's no support network. There's no community. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. And this wasn't unusual. We have women that live around the block that you could see each other's homes and they didn't know that they did. They didn't realize to build this community, the support network I had, with my girlfriend's helping me with my kids? They don't have that because it's strictly survival. It's a level of survival that is beyond what I was doing. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so you and so the program takes them out, gives them some of that opportunity to look at themselves and really emphasizes the importance of their own care and development. And then what
2: has been the impact
0: of these programs?
2: So so it's not only that. I think the most important thing is that they're loved just for being, just for existing. They don't have to do anything. They are loved. And you are loved unconditionally. And we're here to show you this and to bring this, to help you realize that. So you get this four days and I'm not exaggerating when I say a hundred percent walk away saying, I'm ready. I'm going back. I love my kids. I want to go back. We... have the privilege of taking a weekend and going away. And what's that feeling? You come back rejuvenated. You come back energized. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to do this. And my kids, I can't wait. Meanwhile, you couldn't wait to get away. That's what this was for them tenfold. Mm -hmm. Then then from there, we had what was called an after-respite program where monthly we kept the community going.
1: So I'm wondering... What happens between this amazing program, right? Then this amazing organization that you are working in for eight years to where you are today, where you have a business called Dr. Mary LLC, you have this incredible program called MOT method of transformation. You are working deeply with the Enneagram. What was the road to get from this amazing nonprofit you're working with, to where you are today?
2: So I complete my dissertation, which worked me into the ground. Because at the same time, I'm working with the Human Development and Capability Association, teaching, writing my dissertation. And I was at this point running the women's respite program. It's called Women Affirming Women. I'm doing all those things because, yeah, I, like everything else, like I think I'm super women. I end up getting sick again. I wouldn't let my guard down. I wouldn't admit it until I defended. And I defended in 2013. I'm not feeling well. It took three years of going to doctors in 2015. Finally, I get diagnosed. And, you know, when you get the call and and it says, yeah, come in, we've got your test results and we'd like you to bring your husband. Mm. (laughs) I like that response.
1: (laughs) Well, that rarely means we want to share the happy, exciting news with both
2: of you. Yeah. So we walk in there and it's, well, we found not one, but two things. You've got lupus, which is fine. You can live a healthy life with lupus but you've got something called scleroderma and there's no cure for scleroderma. Lifespan is 10 years, average lifespan. No, at this time is 2013. This is 2013. You've got scleroderma and there's no cure. We can maintain it. Join a group and see how everyone else is doing. I continued working until 2015. But at that time it was like, you know what? I'm not healthy. I may have only 10 years. Is this really what I want to do for 10 years? Because that's what they're telling me. And we said, you know what? Let's go back home to Toronto. At this time, I'm living in Columbus, teaching at the university. So we go, I give up everything. I walk away because I don't know how to do anything half past. I just don't. It's all or nothing for me. I had to completely cut all ties, quit at the university, leave my, my position with Women Affirming Women, gave up the capability approach, go to Toronto where all my family is. And I've got two boys living there at this time, two of my kids. So we're closer to home. I'm there. I spend two years getting healthy. That's where I find the Enneagram. In my second year, I hear someone talk about the Enneagram. And I ended up joining the Sisters of St. Joseph, which was became my community. I became an associate with them. Here's the wanting still, that relationship with God. I became an associate with them at one, and I became a leader with them. At one of our meetings, they start talking, and and one of them says, I'm an eight. The other one says, I'm a four. And they said, oh, those poor twos. They're constantly putting themselves on the back burner. And that's when I said, wait, wait a second. What are they talking about? I said, what is that? And they said, Enneagram. You don't know the Enneagram? I opened up my book. I'm like, tell me, how do you spell it? And I looked it up. Coincidentally, my husband was working with a coach and his coach tested him for the Enneagram. Okay, this is really coincidental. Again, like everything that I do, a deep dive, I had to research the heck out of it. Within a year, I got certified in it. <laughs> it's like, okay, what do I do with this? At this time, I'm. we end up buying a home on a lake in Northern Ontario, 2019. My husband gets called back to Columbus at the job he had. I'm feeling great. I'm invincible again. We still haven't hit the 10-year mark. But if you hit five-year mark, you have a 70% chance of living a full life. So my my lifespan is better now. And I'm feeling great. And by the way, I've given up all medication because the medication was making me sick. So I looked at that and I said, okay, this is what I need to do. Learn to say no. Ask for what I need. Ask for help. And rest. I don't have to be, I'm enough. I'm just enough. He gets called back and he leaves in January. I am up north in, I don't know if you're familiar with Northern Ontario, six, seven feet of snow for four months. And I had no community, none, because it was a new home. I had no friends up there yet. And even though my boys were in Toronto, it was too difficult. They had jobs. I only saw them intermittently. Who was I spending time with? Me what did I end up coming face to face? All those wounds and everything that had not healed from my past.
0: And is that through the Enneagram work or were you looking at other things as well that was helping you with that?
2: Through the Enneagram, when you're looking at your childhood wound through, I ended up, signing up for a course with Marianne Williamson. Oh yeah. And and it was a course on the power within or something like that. And through that, I started looking at what my gifts were and what my purpose was and in that time period was when I started getting an insight in really what I had been doing because I had been kind of a spiritual director for people. And I was always the person as a two is that they come to, but I started putting together all my research, the Enneagram, and it was all falling into place. The philosophy, the theology, the Enneagram, systematically how we get from our story of where we are finding our purpose and it just within four months all became very apparent
0: that's amazing
2: so in this time period this is 2017 by this time 2019 my son calls me alexander and he said mom you have to listen to this doctor he has a book called when the body says no and he says, you really have to look at now this isn't for business that I'm looking at. There's no research here. This is strictly, I am ill. He's telling you that different personality types lead to, and he was looking at illnesses over 35 years and he saw a common trait in all these illnesses based on these people's personality. So I get the book. I open up the book, chapter one, Mary, early fifties, have scleroderma. I almost fell off my chair. No way. I swear to God. I swear to God. And I'm reading, I'm like, this is me. He's describing me to a T. As I read each illness, because each chapter is a different illness. I am seeing, oh my gosh, he's describing different Enneagram types. So again, like I did a concordance in science and theology. I am now looking at a concordance between Enneagram and illnesses. Mm. So there my research shifted again. I still in Canada, I hadn't gone back to teaching full-time because I couldn't find a job at a university. And I'm up north and I'm I'm stuck there for four months. I'm, I'm seeing clarity here, but I still wanted to teach. I wanted, I'm still doing research. Like, where is this going to go? And it's funny because I'm sweeping one day and I throw up my hands and here's my discussion with God again. And I'm like, fine, you don't want me to go back to school. You're giving me a message. That's fine. Then tell me what I got to do. I am not joking. Later that day or the next day, my mentor from Ohio Dominican calls me, Mary, I'm going to retire. Would you like my position?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I just have to say, when you just said, I'm not joking. I thought that's what you were saying to God.
2: Oh no, right? <laughs> Like, I'm not joking now. Like, tell no. me. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm telling you that this is not, I am not joking. I'm not, this is the God honest truth. I finally surrendered and said, fine. I've been trying to get a job. Cause I was trying for, this is 2019. I moved there in 2000. I'm, I'm trying three, four years to get a job at a university in Toronto. I could not get a job. And in the meantime, I'm doing like these little courses and I'm really getting a deep dive into into the Enneagram. If I had that job, I wouldn't have done all that. I wouldn't have gone that route. And then finally, I'm like, fine. I I don't know where this is going. I'm saying, fine, I'm going to surrender. I'm not going back to academia. Bring, I get this call. So July of 2019, I start back up in Columbus, Ohio as director of the program the position my director, my mentor had. When I'm there, I start using the Enneagram. I use the Enneagram with all the grad students to help them discern what's the best route, the best for their journey. And I start talking to the executive and we start looking at Enneagram types. 2021, again, there's this unsettling January of 2021, and someone that I had done work with approaches me and says, you need to do more. What you're doing, this method of transformation, what you do with 2025 students a year, you you have to be able to do more with it. I Hmm. want to support you into going out as Dr. Mary and we're going to train others to do this. And I'm like,
0: and this was out of the blue. You hadn't solicited feedback. They just sort of, ha, huh, that's so interesting. Like where you get these messages from sometimes is super interesting, right?
2: Not, not at all. What's really interesting. And this is where the ego plays. It's like, I know I coach, but do I want to be a coach? Right. You know? And I had to really discern again, I'm in the twilight of my career by now. I can retire in this job. It's a pretty nice job. (laughs) Yeah. You get nice holidays, the summer off. Yeah. I don't have a big workload. I'm working with 25 grad students at a time. But this friend has this idea to extend
0: this method of transformation that you had been doing with grad students and make it a broader offering. Yeah. Now I
2: I was doing it with grad students, but I also on the side had started taking clients, Mm -hmm. helping women, only women. Basically, to to really help the, lift them up and break through what's holding them back. So, but let's
0: just get back to this. So, you have this this methodology that you mostly had been applying at university. A friend or a colleague, whoever comes and and has this idea, what happens next? What's the next step that brings us to really this is a this is an
2: offering to the world now? Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm scared to death. Mm. And I was told that I could swear. So I'm scared shitless. (laughs) Why? Because I'm giving up the steering wheel. Yeah. Just like when I left accounting and my dad thought I was crazy. Mm. I'm being questioned again. Are you crazy? You have this really nice job. You're director. You can retire here. And you want to do this because you're not 35 anymore. This is going to be a heck of a lot of work. And like I said I have an amazing amazing husband. Who is not only my cheerleader but he grounds me and he's my sounding board. And when I went to him he said, "Do you not see what you do in the world and how many lives you affect?" And and for an Enneagram too, that's hard to hear because you will never admit that even though you want to be the helper giver, it's you're never enough. And it's funny because, again, the way things work, when I question that again, all of a sudden something shows up in my life to say, no, no, you're on the right path. So, again, I had to buckle down, trust in God that this is where it's going. It's been a a hard road.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Hard. It hasn't been an easy journey. A lot of work. Not, Not that it's been difficult, you know, physically. It's just I'm back to the research and the writing and the developing. About a year ago, Compassionate Inquiry comes across. And you know when something touches you and it just, you have to keep going back and it keeps coming, it keeps coming, it's like, okay, I've got to notice what's going on here. And again, that test of discernment, I sat and I said, no, this is really important and what I'm doing, the two go together. So there I go again, I start studying with Gabor. And I did a year intensive with him. And I learned his technique. I studied with all the beautiful professors he brought to us, the scientist Daniel Siegel, all these beautiful, wonderful, insightful people. And he's expanded my world again. And now I, my belief when I started seeing the concordance has just gotten stronger, and so my research has gotten deeper into how does this work. So I just completed a proposal for the Enneagram Institute for their global summit in the conference, and that's what I'm going to be presenting.
0: Fantastic.
2: Um, well, okay. Our Enneagram proclivities can actually help us to be proactive in healthcare rather than waiting to get sick.
0: Mm.
1: Oh, I love that. You know, earlier in the conversation, you used this really beautiful phrase your imperfect journey that brought you to this perfect place. And I think what you have just described makes it so clear that the ups and the downs and the a little bit sideways, right? A little bit backwards, a little bit forward has just led you to this place where everything about your life has connected. And it's just, it's a really remarkable, remarkable story to hear. And I'm very curious if you could go back in time to little Mary who wants to help and to please, and you could whisper some words of wisdom in her ear. What would you say to her?
2: I'll tell you two things probably. Well, actually the major thing, enjoy the ride. Mm, Beautiful. Enjoy the ride. Don't rush through it because I rushed through a lot. I was always running away from things. And I thought if I'm enough, I won't have this pain. So I rushed through life and I would tell her, you are enough exactly at this point in time for what you need to do. Mm. Enjoy it
0: be present. Beautiful. That's really beautiful. You said it better than either one of us can. I mean, the sort of really perfectly imperfect journey has led you to this really amazing spot. And I just, I think your ability to look at what on the outside might look at very disparate ideas and bring them together is really your unique gift to the world. And I just, I'm so excited to see what comes next for you and to see what comes next for all of us because of the amazing work that you do. So thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Can I just piggyback on what you just said? Yeah. Because please. I finally realized that that is one of my gifts mm. of bringing ideas and people together and that they will work together. And so, what Dr. Mary actually has ended up, which I didn't realize again when we started, is that I'm collaborating with other specialists mm. that have their own unique talent and together. Together, what we can do is going to be greater than the sum of what we can do individually. And that's what Dr. Mary has become. Mm.
0: Beautiful.
1: Yeah, that is so, so beautiful. And we will have all kinds of information in the show notes on how people can find you, your method of transformation program, how they can follow your work. And again, let me echo and just thank you so much for being here with us today. And that wraps up our episode. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find info in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.